Welcome to Better Friendship, a podcast all about creating, growing, and maintaining friendships that sustain, fulfill, and enrich our lives. We're your hosts, Julie and Katie. And today we're going to talk about the history of female friendships, how female friendships are depicted, how society has treated them, and how they've evolved over time. This is actually the first episode in what we think will be a series of six episodes breaking the history down into more manageable pieces because there's definitely a lot of history to dig into here. Absolutely. It's funny. We started talking about this as one episode. And by the end of that conversation, Julie was like, "Mm, I think we need to reconsider this. We did. We clearly had way too much to say for just one episode. And from there, we started to look at the different eras of history and look for trends. And the big picture just kind of came into focus after that. Yeah, I agree. And I love that we went down a rabbit hole here. It's it's just so us to go down a research rabbit hole. But anyway, we're really excited to share our research and these stories of female friendships through the ages with all of you guys. Yes. So today we are going to start with ancient female friendships, and I'm going to kick us off in ancient Greece. We've talked a little bit about the Greeks before. Aristotle did not believe women were capable of friendship. I would like to note real quickly here that there are not a lot of sources on women's friendships from the ancient world. Um, As Katie just told us, Aristotle didn't believe that women were even capable of having friendships. So they certainly weren't recording female friendships and it wasn't getting passed down because as we've mentioned, men were in charge of writing history. And also for a very long time, they were in charge of teaching it. So women's friendships just really weren't included. And they had a lot of control over the whole narrative. And I think it's important to point out that whether or not women's friendships were recorded for posterity, they certainly still existed. Obviously, women were still coming into contact with each other. They had neighbors, they had midwives, they had the girl that they were talking to at the market every day. And just because men didn't see them and write them down doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Um, And I would like to also make a quick note about kind of how Aristotle um, and Plato viewed friendship. They believed that friendship was necessary for the good of society and for the good of the government. Um, So friendships weren't necessarily something private that you had just completely in your home, in your own um, space. These were things that were really driving the outside world. And that wasn't um, a world where women tended to be. And so I think it makes sense in some ways that perhaps the the way that women's friendships manifest looks so different than men's that it's not necessarily that men were just being jerks and being like, oh, well, we're so much better and we're just more capable of friendship than women. But since they look differently, I think there's reason to believe that maybe the way women do friendship was not recognized by these men. It's, it's not always that they're out to get women. It's just you know, sometimes we think differently than men and it leads to lapses in communication, shall we say, for, you know, hundreds of years. But I digress. 
<laughs> no, you're right, though. You know, these pieces of women's stories are missing. They're missing from the history books, but they did still happen. And just because they're missing doesn't mean they were intentionally left out. But they're missing nonetheless. Um, keeping us in ancient Greece. I wanted to talk for a minute about Artemis, um, which I think is, she's an interesting case given what you just noted. Artemis is basically the queen of the girl squads. She was the goddess of the hunt and also the goddess of childbirth and chastity. She had these wild dances and these groups of priestesses who followed her. And what I find most interesting is I read that among rural populations, Artemis was actually the favorite goddess which I think is pretty cool considering that she was depicted as a strong independent hunter. And that's not a traditional role for a woman at this time. Um, I also found that the Greek spirit of friendship and affection wasn't a God. It was a goddess named Philahes. She was the daughter of Nyx or night. And also interestingly, in some tellings, the Furies, the goddesses of vengeance are also the daughters of Nyx. So we have the spirit of friendship and the goddesses of vengeance, all women with the same mother. Women, sisters, controlled both love and hate. That is interesting. Another little tidbit about Artemis, and this is one of my favorite things about her. Supposedly, she specifically asked Zeus that she never be forced to marry. That was all that she asked. She did not want a husband. She just wanted to run around in the woods with her girlfriends, shooting arrows at the moon and hunting some deer. They just wanted to have a good time and go run around and be wild and free. And girl, same. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But especially considering that all throughout Greek mythology, we see these strong um, friendships and bonds between men. Um, It's interesting that we don't see the same with women, but we do see men acting out in vengeance in really powerful ways. I'm thinking specifically of Achilles and Patroclus, but also of Damon and Pythias. Achilles and Patroclus, I know. Um, And their story plays into this larger Greek idea that men were capable of honor and friendship in ways that women weren't, that men were more emotionally and mentally capable of deep friendship because of their higher functioning. And you can't see me, but if you could, I would be rolling my eyes. Um, But also because of their roles in society. Basically, men ran, this is going to be a little bit of a, an academic diatribe that I'm going to go on here. So I apologize. (laughs) But I promise it's interesting. Basically, men ran the government, which was called the police. And that's where we get the word politics. And men also did the fighting. And so men had to trust each other and work together. Conversely, women ran the home, the ecos, which is where we get the word economics. And they didn't have a role in the larger machinations of outside society. So if you've ever read the Oresteia, in that trilogy of plays, you can see the push and pull from one part of society to the other. We see it particularly in the play Agamemnon. Agamemnon is the king of Mycenae and Argos in the Iliad. 
And he basically stole his daughter, Iphigenia, from her mother and from her appropriate place in society and sacrificed her to start the Trojan War. He killed her as a sacrifice to Artemis so that the Greek army could have wind in the sails of their ships and actually set sail for Troy. But in doing that, he overstepped into the ecos, into the home, and he brought her into the world of men, into the police. And that threw off the balance of society. And in the play Agamemnon, his wife Clytemnestra kills him in vengeance and she sets the world into chaos again because now in her vengeance she's overstepped into the man's world into the police and she's killed a leader in larger society her vengeance feels warranted i mean i would do the same <laughs> um if somebody lied to me and and said that my daughter was going to go off and be married and actually sacrificed her to start a war i would be livid not that I have a daughter or live in ancient Greece where this kind of thing happens. <laughs> in mythology, anyway. Um, her vengeance feels warranted to us, to our modern eyes. But it actually was just as inappropriate and out of bounds in her society as her husband killing their daughter was. Because it, it threw off the balance. Um, so that was a deep dive into a college class I had once. And I think that's <laughs> And I probably should not do that. Tell me about Damon and Pythias. All right, I will. But I'm going to jump back into Iphigenia for just one second. And I'm so sorry. Um, I'm not sorry. That's a lie. And I'm sorry that I lied to you. That's true. Um, but there is a version of this story where our, our girl Artemis comes in at the last minute and she swoops Iphigenia off of the sacrificial altar and replaces her with a stag. And then she takes Iphigenia off to live with her like girl squad in the woods and they all live happily ever after. So I would just like to end that story that way because it's my preferred version of the story. That is a much um, happier ending to the story. Yes. Um, but I, I also have to agree. If if my husband killed our daughter um, as a sacrifice to, to anything without, you know, talking to me about it first at the very least I mean come on man I can see me being you know that scene where Achilles just goes nuts and he like kills the river god and all the gods are like um we should maybe do something this guy is out of control and they're all like really afraid of him that would be me I would be Achilles in that situation he does that in response to Patroclus being killed doesn't he speaking of men getting vengeance yeah yeah when his when his friend dies he like he just he loses it and and like even the gods become afraid of him in his grief over the loss of his friend and they're they're such close friends that even today modern scholars are like well like how good friends were they <laughs> um and the answer was very i think i think we can all just they were very they were good friends um but anyway let's talk about another set of really good friends damon and pythias um, so once again, there's different versions of this story, but basically it's about true friends being willing to sacrifice themselves for each other. One of the two friends is condemned to death, but he asks to have time to go get his affairs in order. At first, his request is refused, but then the other one steps 
up and offers to die in his friend's place if he doesn't come back in time. And for a while, it looks pretty bad. It looks like they're not Patroclus and Achilles level friends. But finally, at the last second, the friend does return and they both get to live because the man who had originally sentenced him um, was also the father of the other friend, weirdly. He was moved by this show of friendship and, and decided to pardon him. So, um, oh, sorry, no, go, go for it. Um, I was going to say, you know, I think that's a really powerful example. And, and of course, we talked about Achilles and Patroclus. And they're very powerful examples of what friendship could look like in the Greek world. Yeah. So I was going to say the same thing. I think that's, I mean, other than the fact that somebody's dad sentenced them to death, I think that's a really great story. And I think it's a really good depiction of friendship. And I just don't feel like we see all that many women with close friends and good relationships in Greek mythology. Yeah, I don't think we really do see that. In fact, I would say that we kind of see the opposite in Greek mythology. Yeah, I think we do. At least in in many, many cases, we see women being exiled and alone, like Circe, the witch on the island that Odysseus runs into after the Trojan War. Or we see women being punished for not returning a man's affections and then being ostracized when they speak up, like Cassandra, who was a priestess in Troy and kept telling the Trojans that they would lose, but Apollo had cursed her that all of her prophecies would not be believed. Or we see women being physically taken advantage of, like Leda, who was seduced by Zeus in the form of a swan, and she became the mother of Helen of Troy, who has her own crazy story. Which we're going to be talking about, and I would like to say it was probably exciting to everyone else, but maybe not so much to Helen. We see these women kind of pitted against each other and punishing one another. Specifically, we see this in the story of Medusa. Just like the story of Damon and Pythias, there are a few different versions of this myth of Medusa. The one I'm going to share today says that Medusa was a beautiful priestess in the temple of Athena. She was so beautiful, in fact, that she caught the eye of Poseidon, who was, of course, the god of the sea, and Poseidon then raped her, and he did this in the temple of Athena, where Medusa was a priestess. And this action made Athena absolutely furious, and she decided that Medusa needed to be punished for engaging in this activity with Poseidon, who Athena was um, notoriously had a rivalry with. Um, and so Athena then punished Medusa by turning her into this snake-haired gorgon that we think of today. So Medusa was punished for Poseidon's crime. Yes. Other versions of the story say that she was so beautiful that Athena was jealous. And so that's why she cursed her to be a hideous monster. That's not any better. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, and Athena was kind of known for turning people into monsters, though. Uh, she turned another woman, Arachne, into the world's first spider because Arachne said that she was the best weaver in the world and it pissed off Athena who thought that she was the best weaver in the world. 
Um, there is one woman that Athena is positively associated with, and that is Nike, the goddess of victory. But we don't have any real stories of them together. Uh, the only time we kind of see them in, in mythology together is we know that Nike helped Athena during the battle when the Olympian gods were, um, were defeating the Titans. And then we kind of see them depicted in, in artistic representations together, but we don't really have any other stories of them together. Um, and what I've been finding in my research, um, specifically in ancient Greece, is that female friendship wasn't really a respected thing, or in a lot of cases, it wasn't even a safe place. Have you heard the story of Polyxo and Helen? I haven't. I've heard of Helen of Troy. I mean, everyone's heard of Helen of Troy. She of the face that launched a thousand ships because it was totally her fault that Agamemnon was spoiling for a war with Troy all along. Um, we can talk about that a little later. I've not heard of Polyxo. Okay. So Polyxo's husband was killed in the Trojan War and she blamed Helen for it. As with all of the myths that we've talked about, there are different versions of this story. But the basics are that Polyxos had her servants dress up as the Furies. If you remember, they are the female goddesses of vengeance. And they kidnapped Helen and hung her from a tree. And this was symbolic. So in ancient Greece, hanging was seen as a woman's death. Men who, if they hung themselves or if, if you were to hang a man, that was considered a grave um, insult because hanging was a death reserved for women. And the reason behind that was that women were seen as um, closer to nature. They had an association with the earth um, because of pregnancy and, and giving birth and, you know, that the whole cycle thing that we got going on. So what, what they were doing when they would hang a woman was they would separate her from the earth. They would remove her from, from that place where her womanhood came from. So that's why she was hung. This, this was a very symbolic gesture in hanging um, Helen. But there are other versions of this story. In one version, Menelaus does manage to save Helen at the last moment. This happens a lot in Greek mythology. People get saved at the very last minute for a happy ever after. But I think it's also important to point out that this happy ever after is a, not really everybody's happy ever after. Um, because Menelaus saves Helen by dressing up a servant girl and putting that poor servant girl in Helen's place. So it's the servant girl who dies instead of Helen. Um, but the point is, it's yet another story of a woman punishing another woman for something she didn't do. Especially if you consider that Helen was promised to Paris by the goddesses and she had no control over anything that happened in and around the Trojan War. I said a few minutes ago that the blame for the Trojan War is often laid at the feet of Helen. And I just think that's entirely undeserved. So the backstory here is that there was this beauty contest between three goddesses, Aphrodite, 
Athena, who we've talked about, and Hera. And Paris, who was the son of King Priam of Troy, was the judge of this beauty contest. Each goddess offered him something to try and entice him into choosing her as the winner, as the most beautiful goddess. Aphrodite promised Paris the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. And that woman happened to be Helen. And this set the events of the Trojan War in motion. And Helen didn't have anything to do with it other than being a beautiful woman. The choice wasn't hers to make. Aphrodite put her in that position. Her fate was tied up in the hands of a goddess. So yet again, another a woman, another case of, of a woman hurting another woman, and then lots of other people. The Trojan War was a tragedy and a catastrophe, and all of it over a silly beauty contest. Helen's only crime here is being beautiful. And that's very similar to Medusa. And honestly, also to Cassandra, if we go pop back up to the top of the episode, you know, she she turned down the advances of a male god. And so she was punished. So I, I think we see that often that that beauty is a crime here. Um, but I think we see over and over again the idea that that women are vain, they're untrustworthy, and that they'll turn on each other, then they can't be friends. But luckily, we've also seen some examples where this isn't always the case. Yeah, we have. And, and we'll talk about a really notable exception here in a minute. Um, I'll go ahead and lead us into the next section. So I've been finding the same thing in a lot of my research, the idea that women are vain and untrustworthy. When we started talking about this episode, which has become now a series of episodes, I started thinking about the book, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. It's a huge TV show now, but I initially read the book when I was in college and I was just totally disturbed by it, which is its purpose as a book. It's such a good book, but it's so hard to read. And I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it or for anyone who hasn't seen the TV show. But the basic premise of the story in The Handmaid's Tale is that the U.S. has been taken over by a religious government that imposes what its leaders perceive as biblical rules and standards on society. And the reason that the book is so scary and so disturbing as a story is that Margaret Atwood has said many times that she didn't include anything in the book that didn't exist somewhere in history or in the stories that, that we humans tell each other. Um, so there's nothing in the book that there's not some record somewhere of someone doing to someone else. And that includes this ceremony between a husband, a wife, and a handmaid, which again, I'm not going to spoil. <laughs> but this ceremony was inspired by the story of Sarah and Hagar in the Bible. So Sarah was the wife of Abraham, and when she found that she couldn't conceive a child, she gave Abraham her slave, Hagar, which according to my research was actually a common practice at the time. Hagar did get pregnant, and she had a son called Ishmael. And after she had Ishmael, the two women became rivals. The Bible says that Hagar became arrogant, and that Sarah got jealous. And then after Sarah had eventually years later given birth to her own son, Isaac, she got worried that Ishmael would also become Abraham's heir. 
And she actually asked Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And he did. He banished them out into the desert. I see two things in this story that I think we should talk about. The first is that these two women are connected by a man. We also see this in the story of Ruth and Naomi, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then the the second thing that I wanted to bring up is that the women become rivals. I think we still see consequences of that sort of thinking today, that women have to fight each other for men's attention and affection. And these days also for things like jobs, influence, and status. Like there can only ever be one Hollywood it girl at a time. That's so true. I remember when Jennifer Lawrence was kicked off of the sort of proverbial Hollywood pedestal for Lupita Nyong'o. And the comments about Jennifer Lawrence were so mean, even though people had loved her before. I think it ties into this myth of scarcity, that there's not room out there for lots of happy, successful women at the top. And it just drives me crazy. But I digress. Tell me about Ruth and Naomi, because I know that that's a positive story that we can dig into. Yes. And I I will in one second. But I want to jump on this um, Jennifer Lawrence train here for a moment. Um, I remember reading an article a while back comparing Kristen Stewart and Jennifer Lawrence and how everyone loved Jennifer Lawrence because she was so fun and authentic. You wanted to be her best friend. Basically, she was the girl next door. But Kristen Stewart came across as too serious and moody because she tends to do more artistic and independent films, whereas Jennifer Lawrence likes to do more kind of pop culture roles. And the article talked about them like you could only be or like one or the other. You can either like art and be serious or you can have fun and have friends. That is fascinating because when Jennifer Lawrence was compared to Lupita Nyong'o, people said that Jennifer Lawrence was so messy and that her authenticity was just fake and that it was all an act to make her more likable. Whereas Lupita Nyong'o was so elegant and so serious about her art and her acting, and that was a good thing. So it's fascinating how it shifted like that. And to be clear, all of these women are awesome and amazing actresses. They seem so smart and they're beautiful and they seem like great people. There's no reason to compare them this way. I just don't understand why we can only have one Hollywood it girl. I don't know. And it it just seems so odd that this goalpost is constantly shifting. You know, at one point being serious and artsy is bad. And then, you know, next year somebody new comes along and now everybody should be serious and artsy. and, And it kind of makes it seem like there's only one way for women to be. It's a crazy world. But let's move back to to Ruth and Naomi. They've been ignored long enough. So let's not keep them waiting. Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. So again, we see that connection through a man. Also, interestingly, we've talked about mother-in-laws before and how their presence can increase anxiety in new mothers. Luckily, that was not the case for Ruth and Naomi. After Ruth's husband and Naomi's son died, Naomi encouraged Ruth to remarry, and Naomi planned to return to her own relatives. But Ruth wouldn't leave her. There's a really famous quote from this story that gets used, gets used at wedding ceremonies all the time. 
For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. It's really nice to see two women who have a positive relationship depicted in the Bible and to see that relationship get attention and to see that story get told. Um, I think we've seen all throughout this episode that there are lots of negative examples and not that many positive examples that really have an opportunity to get fleshed out. Um, and speaking of, of stories getting told and fleshed out and getting attention, I've always wondered if the two Marys, so Mary, Jesus's mother, and Mary Magdalene, I've always wondered if they knew each other, and if they did, how well they knew each other, and how they interacted with each other. I think we can only assume that they did. I'd mentioned the book The Social Sex in the last episode, and it talks about them, these two Marys, and how likely it is that they knew and interacted with each other, even though we never see it depicted. Mary Magdalene is the only person listed in every gospel as being the first to discover Jesus's body is missing from the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, her sister, and the Virgin Mary, Jesus's mother, are all present at Jesus's crucifixion. And then it's Mary Magdalene and Mary, Jesus's mother, who claim Jesus's body at the tomb. So clearly the two Marys knew each other. Clearly they had a relationship. And they interacted with each other. And I wish the Bible told us more about their story and about their relationship. And goodness knows there are lots of other things we could talk about when it comes to Mary Magdalene. Perhaps we should save that for another episode. But again, I just, I wish that the Bible told us more of their story. I guess maybe it was not the primary story to be told. Yeah, I mean, I can see why in the whole resurrection of man as God you know I can see why they kind of got left out there they just weren't the focus of that story but ultimately I think you're right it still would have been nice maybe there's another point in the story where we could have heard a little bit more about them it's clear their relationship wasn't considered all that important and I think that's very telling there's another story we can talk about though and that's Lydia um, so Lydia is kind of an interesting character, um, in the Bible. She doesn't have a, a, a huge role. She's not there for, a, she's not there for a long time. She's just there for a good time. Um, and I got that wrote Lydia... reference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so Lydia hears St. Paul, um, he's come to, to wherever she lives and, um, he's preaching and he, he's telling, the story of Christ and she hears this and she really encourages Paul to bring that um, that message and those teachings specifically to the women of her community. Um, and although we don't really see her necessarily act, um, kind of interacting with another woman, we still do see her interacting with other women through Paul, so through another man, she's still very influential in, in bringing this message to women. So she's kind of like the original yes sister in that she's trying to help the women of her community find this path and this, this area of spiritual growth. 
And I really like this story and how we can see traces of women's friendships and and how they care for one another's well-being, even though it's not really a story that gets a lot of attention. And it's certainly one that we really need to dig for to, to find and to get. For generations, men wrote the stories. But that has changed and it's continuing to change, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But the idea that women can't be friends has been pervasive. And every time we lean into that narrative, say by only accepting one Hollywood it girl at a time, we're contributing to that and we're reinforcing it. Part of the concept behind today's episode was because that we believe when we can see the threads of where this thinking began, we can change and challenge those modalities to create a picture of women's friendships that's more genuine, it's more positive, and it's better aligned with the types of friendships that we want to have. Absolutely. And with the types of friendships that we often do have. Um, you know, women are so much more than petty and vain and untrustworthy. And I think... I know that we'll see that and we'll be able to demonstrate it. We continue to explore the history of women's friendships in the upcoming five. I think we said it would be a series of six. So the upcoming five episodes, um, this is going to be such an awesome series. Yeah. I'm so excited. Um, anyway, so what have we learned today? So we've learned that early depictions of women's friendships were rare and the depictions of women's friendships that we do have are not overwhelmingly positive and that this set the course for a generations long narrative of women being incapable of true friendship. Even though there were exceptions and we've talked about a few of them and we know from previous episodes that women have become evolutionarily better at making friends and building relationships since they often had no choice. So next week, we're going to explore some medieval and Renaissance friendships. And I think we'll definitely see that ability come into play. So research. I pulled from the Bible and from The Social Sex by Marilyn Yalom and Teresa Donovan Brown. I also, <clears throat> pardon me, I also used a few articles that will get posted on the website. And I pulled from my middle school knowledge of Greek mythology mixed in with a couple of college classes and with the Oresteia, which is one of my favorite trilogy of plays, um, trilogies of plays, <laughs> Greek mythology has always been one of my favorite things to study. Any mythology. Same here. I, I just love mythology. Um, I've always liked Greek mythology, but I, I enjoy expanding outside of Greek mythology, too, and, and seeing how different parts of the world kind of told their stories and, and what they felt needed to be told. Um, and on that note, actually, before I get into my research, I would like to ask any of our listeners if you have any stories or if you know of any mythology that focuses on women's friendships, please send us that. Uh, we spent a lot of time digging and we had a hard time finding sources or research that talked about women's friendships in mythology or just in existence outside of that kind of traditional Western paradigm. 
So we tried to find things. And of course, since we're looking at ancient Greece, we're looking at the Bronze Age. So I tried to find things from, um, you know, Bronze Age, China, um, the, the dynasties that were happening there. I tried to look at, you know, what was happening in Africa during the Bronze Age, what what empires were there, what was their mythology. And I was just not coming back with a lot of academic resources. But Katie and I would like to be able to expand this conversation to include more than just that traditional Western um, thinking and, and paradigm. So if you have anything like that, or if you know a place that we could go look, we would definitely love love for you to share that with us because we we would like to be able to have this conversation on a on a larger scale that reflects more than just western things absolutely um yes so please 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 um give me more things to read and research but anyway my research that i did do that i was able to find i didn't use a ton of books i've always had a mythology thing so i knew a lot of these stories and i've just been reading them since I could read. But the books that I did use were also The Social Sex by Marilyn Yalom and Teresa Donovan Brown. Um, Friendships of Women, The Hidden Tradition of the Bible by Joan Chittister. Chittister? Not quite sure. So sorry, Joan. Um, and that was really it for me. Again, a couple of, of articles, um, which will be put on the website at some point. Um, other than that, we'll be back for another episode on March 16th. It'll be the second episode in this series. Until then, you can find us at the web at betterfriendships.com. We're on Instagram at better underscore friendships. And you can email us at info at Please do, in fact. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like us, please follow our podcast and share it with your friends, with your yes sisters. And until next time, remember... There are tall ships and small ships. There are ships that sail the sea. But the best ships are friendships. And may they always be.